Well, we're going to continue our study in the book of John, chapter 18. We started off in chapter 18 last week, um, and we're going to continue on with that through verse 11 this morning. Um, as we continue to move towards uh, the cross, towards the crucifixion, towards the resurrection as we go through the book of John, more and more we're going to be referencing some of the other gospel accounts as well as we move towards that harmony that we talked about last week of the gospels. Uh, so last week we started with verse 1, obviously. It said, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And as we saw from that, obviously they were going to what we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, uh, the Brook Kidron travels uh, down through the valley. And at that time, when they were sacrificing, bringing sacrifices, the lambs that were being sacrificed, blood ran thick down through the Brook Kidron. It was the uh, way that, that the blood was taken from the Temple Mount and, and you know, dispersed out into the countryside, if you will. So at the time Jesus is walking across this brook, uh, it could have been filled with blood. It wouldn't have been this clear little bu bubbling brook that you might see in the mountains here. Uh, it would have been uh, tainted with all of the blood that had, uh, from the sheep that had been going through there. So uh, think about that as you're going across, that, that as Jesus is crossing the brook Kidron, the Lamb of God crossing this brook being able to see and visibly uh, uh, see that the blood of the lambs uh, you know, was, that were being sacrificed was uh, traveling through there as well. So he's moving in towards the garden as we saw last week and as we looked at the, this harmony of the Gospels as we take each one of the Gospels and lay them on top of each other, uh, we have this continuous, accurate, truthful storyline, if you will, of what was taking place. And so, uh, again, there's four different authors, three of those authors, authors writing the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John's gospel that we've been going through. And so as we take into account all of those things, it gives us a better picture of what's going on. So the main theme in last week's study was how at this time in the garden, Jesus was praying and the disciples were sleeping, as we saw that. And to bring as application to and for us, we know that Jesus today sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding or praying for us. And unfortunately, just like his disciples in the garden, he sometimes finds us what? Sleeping spiritually. And he reminds us, as he said to them, if you want to turn over to Matthew 26 again this morning, hold your place in John, we're going to be referencing that a couple times today. Jesus said to his disciples there in verse 41, Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we, as we see that verse, as we read that verse, as we study that verse, we know, yes, it applied directly to the disciples at that time in the garden. But we know that this applies to us as well, right? Well, watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. The spirit is... Indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, in short, uh, in this verse, the Lord has instructed us with two distinct commands. Watch 
and pray. Watch and pray. And he also gives us the consequence of not heeding these two commands that he's just given us. What is it? Or you're going to fall into temptation, right? And the reason why is twofold. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. So overall, it's a very simple directive if it's followed. But therein lies the problem. We know that because of outside influence or world influence that we deal with, we have a tendency to move to that weak side at times, don't we? Rather than being totally dependent upon the Spirit, we give in to the flesh. It's the difference between obedience and disobedience. We know that. The Spirit is prompting us to say, the Spirit that resides in each one of, the, of us that has accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, He's prompting us to say or to act in a particular way and that way that he's prompting us to move or to, to say, it's always in agreement with God's will. We know that. We've looked at that. They're in agreement 100%. And yet, we still choose. We have a tendency to say or, or react contrary to that leading, don't we, at times? We know that. We attempt to do things in our own will rather than in God's will, our way instead of God's way. So Jesus first directs the disciples to do what? To, to watch. Now that makes sense for the scene that we see that's developing in the garden, right? Jesus knows that they're going to be coming for him. And so asking the disciples to watch makes sense. To be on watch, to be uh, on guard, to be awake spiritually, to be aware of what's going on. We know that the enemy wants to cause us to stumble. He wants to trip us up, doesn't he? He comes at us with an attack, and it's attack, uh, it's custom made for our situation for that particular time, right? He wants to trip us up. He wants to stumble us, so he's got a plan of attack to cause that very thing to happen. And on our side, we see the attack coming. Are we going to respond to that attack in the spirit? or in the flesh. And we know the result. If we respond to it in the flesh, we're going to fall into temptation, aren't we? So this, the enemy wants us to trip us up. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Other translations say, Be alert and of sober mind. We are to be on guard about his agenda. The flesh prompts us to give in to temptation. The spirit prompts us to refrain and to turn away from that temptation, doesn't it? We've talked about this before. It's like if you're standing here and you've got temptation and an act of the flesh on this side and you've got the spirit and pleasing God and doing God's will on the other side, we are to just physically turn away and move towards God. Yeah, it's a thing that happens in our hearts and our minds, but yet if we would get that down, thinking about the fact that, no, I need to physically turn away from that and move away, move towards God, closer to God. Romans 12, 2, which we've referenced many times, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. The flesh conforms. The flesh is weak, it gives in, so it conforms to the pressures 
that are brought upon us by the enemy. But the Spirit does what? Transforms. It changes the whole thing. We're transformed. The Spirit is strong. It's, it overcomes. So the question then becomes, are we feeding the flesh or feeding the Spirit? Which one's stronger? Maybe some of you have heard the analogy as, as if you were to raise two dogs. And these, these two dogs were uh, duplicate, the twins, dogs, if you will. And so they're the same age, the same stature, the same makeup. And you're raising these dogs. Which one of those two dogs is going to be stronger? Probably the one you feed the most, right? If you're feeding this one more than you're feeding this one, this dog is going to become stronger. Now, not to <laughs> reference the spirit as a dog, but think about that. You have the spirit and you have the flesh. Which one is going to be stronger? The one you feed the most, right? So if we're in a, a discipline, a practice of being in a place where we're feeding the spirit more than feeding the flesh, the spirit is be going to become stronger in our lives. And that's a good thing, right? So who's in control of our lives? Is it the flesh or the spirit? Why, why do we sin to start with? Because we're relying on self. We're relying on our flesh to guide us. So we're conforming. That's where we fall into sin. But when we rely on the Spirit, He will always lead us away from sin. And that's transforming in our lives. So as we watch, as we are awake, aware of what's going on around us, we have the tendency to become overwhelmed, don't we? With what we see. Now Brian has been bringing some of those things out to us, bringing it to our attention on Wednesday nights. It's a healthy thing for us to realize there's a lot going on in the world around us, right? And sometimes it can be overwhelming. The news that we hear through, you know, through the media, the things that we're exposed to, it can be overwhelming at times if we're focused on that. And our flesh gives in to going in that direction. Oh, fretting, I don't know what's going to happen. What's going to take place? Everything's going crazy. So we get overwhelmed. But what does Jesus instruct His disciples? What does He instruct us to do in this little verse in Matthew? Watch and pray. So yes, we're to be aware. We are to be watching. He instructs that. But what are we supposed to do about it? Pray. Pray about what's going on, about what it is that we see, what, that we're exposed to. He's basically, basically saying, take what you see, what you are overwhelmed about, what is out of your control, and pray to the one who is in control. We are to watch and pray and take it to the one who has the power to do something about it. Take it to the one who has the power to and has overcome. Take it to the one who is the one who is in control. Jesus was always and is always in control. Now, we've studied so far in John's Gospel, Jesus was placed, as we have seen, in all kinds of situations and scenarios. And we know from our study of the book of John that He has proved time and time again that He was in complete control of every situation, right? You can do that when you're God. You can be totally in control, can't you? So we can always trust in, have faith in, and rely upon the fact that Jesus is in control. So this morning in our text, John chapter 18, you might be saying, Pastor Jim, he's about to be arrested. 
He's about to be punished and crucified. Who's in control here? Is he, is he in control? Really? Years ago, I heard the story of, a, of an engineer, an electrical engineer that worked for GE. And he was retiring. And his last project that he worked on before he retired was this uh, big piece of equipment that they had to bring in to do uh, something for manufacturing. And so he was the one that was overseeing the installation of that equipment, all of the hookup that it took to, to get that equipment up and running, and then making sure everything was running smoothly. And then he retired. Well, about six months later, he gets a phone call that the machine isn't working. And so they asked him if they could hire him as a consultant to come back in and help them fix the problem. So the engineer comes in, an elderly gentleman, and he walks around the piece of equipment. He's trying this, he's trying that, uh, you know, turns it on, listens to it, does all sorts of things. And then pulls out a little marker out of his back pocket, walks over to this little box on the side and puts an X on it. And he said, that's your problem. Replace that and everything will be fine. Well, okay, thank you very much. So then about 30 days later, the company gets a bill from this engineer for fixing a piece of equipment, $10,000. And so the accounting department kind of freaked out. They said, this is not going to work. It's too vague. We need an itemized account of the work that you did so that we know that what you're billing us for is, is correct. So about five or six days later, they get another bill and it has two items on there. The first one said, making a mark on the broken piece of equipment, $1. The next item said, knowing where to put the X on the broken piece of equipment, $9,999. That was their itemized, their, his itemized account uh, to them. He was in control, wasn't he? He knew what was going on with that piece of equipment. He was in control not only of getting that fixed, but also charging them for it. We see that in our lives every day. There are things that we're in control of, right? Kinda. <laughs> We like to think that we are, don't we? We like to think that, okay, on this particular thing, whatever's going on, I'm in control of that. I got this. How many of you have ever said that? I got this. And how many times has it not really worked out the way that you thought it was going to? And maybe you didn't got it as much as you thought you got it, right? So who's in control? Well, let's pick up on our text in John chapter 18, starting with verse 2. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me I have lost none. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, we know uh, that for us it is a historical account. Uh, for us this morning it is an account that's leading up to and the events that take place before the crucifixion of Jesus. But Father, we know that for us, uh, you, as you always do, you have application for us in this passage as well. So we pray, Father, that you open our minds and our hearts to what it is that you want to show us for knowledge, certainly this morning, uh, to grow us in, in wisdom, but also, Lord, that we might be able to apply uh, the lessons learned to our lives. So, Lord, be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we read through this text, it appears at first glance, uh, what? The whole situation's out of control, isn't it? That Jesus and his disciples are going to uh, suffer and uh, be uh, brought in by this detachment of troop, troops that are coming by... Uh, the prompting of the religious leaders of the day that uh, it's no way that if you look at this and that they're in control, the, the odds look overwhelming, don't they? And there are a number of players in this scene that appear to be in control. So verse 2, And Judas who betrayed him also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So in our cast of characters that we're looking at in this uh, portion of Scripture, uh, Judas... Uh, is the first one we uh, see here. It says, Judas who betrayed him. We know that to be true because we know that when they were in the upper room, the whole scene that took place, and Judas had already made this deal. He's made this deal to betray Jesus, as we'll see later in our study, for 30 pieces of silver. So all Judas has to do now is do what? He needs, he's just got to deliver the goods. He just got to deliver Jesus to the hands of the enemy here, and he, he gets his reward. And Judas knows where Jesus is. He knows that Jesus and his boys are not armed. They're not prepared for this kind of thing. They're going to be taken by surprise, Judas thinks. Judas thinks that he and believes that he can pull this off without a hitch, doesn't he? All he has to do is guide this group to where Jesus is, and show them which one Jesus is with a kiss. We know that from the other gospel account in Luke, that he's going to betray Jesus with a kiss. And that's going to be the indication to all of those that are with him who Jesus is, which one. So Judas believes he is in control of the situation. If he does his part, everything comes together, doesn't it? He's in control. He thinks, but things get out of hand quickly for Judas, don't they? Things do not work out according to his plan. He was just a pawn that was being used in a much larger scheme. How do we know that? Well, if you still got your place in Matthew 26, flip to Matthew chapter 27, starting with verse 1. We get to see here, read here, how this all worked out for the former disciple, uh, Judas. 
Chapter 27, verse 1 says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So we're going to see that as we move through John, this scene takes place. But let's, let's look at what happens to Judas. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. And then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So obviously from this text, things didn't work out too well for Judas, did they? He wasn't in control. thought he was. And we'll talk later about the purposes behind Judas's betrayal, what would lead him to do what he did from the standpoint of uh, just what we see in him as a man. But we also know that it was prophesied, don't we? That he was going to be what was called the son of perdition. He was the one that God was, had chosen you know, from the beginning to betray the Lord. And you say, that's just not fair. For Judas, is it? Uh, yeah, at first glance, no, it's not. But yet, take that up with God, all right? God is the one who determined that that was going to be what Judas did. So uh, I don't know what to tell you on that other than that's the way God set it up. That was God's will for, for that. So we see Judas. Judas was, he was not in control, was he? He thought he was thought things were going to work out according to his plan and this scheme that he had devised with the other leaders, but it didn't work out. Verse 3, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So we have in this verse several groups of people. Let's take a look at them. We see a detachment of troops. We see officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. Of course, in that, we have the chief priests and the Pharisees themselves. And then as we read in our text, we're going to see a little later on here, we also have Peter and the disciples, but especially Peter in this case. So what is this detachment of troops? Well, detachment is translated as a Roman cohort. Now, we've probably used that word before, cohort. We speak of it as... Uh, a partner in crime, if you will. Hey, my cohort on this whole thing or whatever. Uh, it can be used in many different ways. As we came to Bertha to plant the church, uh, I brought some cohorts from Greeley with me, okay? <laughs> Such as they were. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, they were those that came alongside to move in the same direction of or with the same purpose, all right? So you have this uh, cohort, but cohort in the Greek, one-tenth of a legion is what it's referred to. Now, a legion in the Roman army was 6,000 men. That's a legion. So one-tenth of a legion, this cohort then, 600 armed men. Now, when you look at that, you just think, why? You know, there's 11 disciples. There's Jesus and these 11 guys, not armed. Why 600 men? We have to understand 
Rome was in place to not let anything get out of control, right? Now, does that mean that 600 armed guards, you know, go stomping through the garden? No, I don't believe so. I believe that they were available, maybe outside the garden or, or at least within uh, reach, so that if something went south on them here, they could call in those troops and it would all take place. How many actually went into the garden to make the arrest? We don't have any idea. We don't know. We just don't know. However, uh, we can assume certainly that it was a fairly large number because they, want, they did not want anything to go the wrong way here. This Roman cohort, about 600 men, uh, they're dispatched. And this, this had to be somewhat intimidating. If you've got 600 soldiers, lanterns and torches and weapons, you would have heard this, right? Uh, it's kind of like here on Sunday mornings when a train goes by. We know that it's a train. It's making a lot of noise. And so we're able to detect that. So the disciples in the garden, it's hard to imagine that once this started, this movement started towards the garden, they could have been sleeping. I would think they'd be going, what is that? What, what's, what's that noise? And I believe that at that time, that's when Jesus came. Hey, the hour has come and let them know. So Jesus was then going out to meet this uh, large group of people. Uh, so you have uh, the disciples uh, hearing this, uh, the very thing that Jesus had said, watch for. <laughs> now it's upon them. Uh, but the Roman leaders, those that would be over this detachment of troops in that time, they thought that they were very much in control, didn't they? Well, they're going to keep uh, control of things by force, just the sheer numbers that they had. We know that between, uh, in what we, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have what's called the 400 silent years. And we know during that time, Rome became a strong presence in that, that whole area. And some of the things that they had done during that time was built a new system of roads uh, in uh, Israel. And so also uh, they brought in all these troops to keep orders. They brought in a police force, if you will. But the other thing that took place during that time was a common language, right? Greek became the prominent language in, uh, not only in that time, but in that area. And we look at that and we think, okay, here's Rome coming in and they're just taking over in all aspects. They're building roads, they're policing those roads. They set up this common language, and so now they're, they're just totally in control. But isn't it interesting how God works and that all of a sudden Christ comes on the scene and the gospel is being shared and the gospel needs to go out into all the world, doesn't it? Well, they've got safe roads now to travel. They've got a common language to use to just disperse the gospel everywhere. <laughs> so you think, well, was Rome in control? No, I believe it was probably God, wasn't it? It was all set up on his part to do this. But Rome, and just the way that they were structured, they were going to keep the people in submission, weren't they? They were going to be in control of everything. So they send this big detachment of troops to make sure... Uh, things go their way. So now we have also the officers from the religious leaders. Now who are these guys? We've got this detachment of troops. You think that would be enough, but now we have these officers uh, from the chief priests and the Pharisees. 
Think of this group as the, the temple police, if you will. They're Jewish appointed men to handle incidents to avoid the need for Roman interference. Now you think about that. Rome had such a presence there, and it would be such a pain for them to have any disruption in, in the status quo, if you will, of the way things that were going. And so the religious leaders of the day knew that their positions, their authority to whatever degree they had it at that time, would be threatened by any uprisings, right? There had already been a, a couple of them, so they wanted to make sure that things not only were not getting out of control as far as they were seeing it, but they also didn't want word getting back to, to the Roman leaders, did they? They had this system set up uh, that was working for them. Yeah, they detested Rome. They didn't want them there, but the system and the way they had it set up at this point was working fairly well. So they had these Jewish appointed men, these officers, to handle any incidents that came up. And most of what they had to deal with, they handled. Except when it came to this one man named Jesus. This didn't work out well at all. These officers would have had to have been there when Jesus cleared the temple of the money changers. Twice. They would have probably been the very ones there to guard the money, the temple treasury. Also, you remember in John chapter 7, verse 32, the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to take Jesus at that time. We know that it wasn't his time yet, so it wasn't going to happen, right? But they sent these officers to take him and bring him back. And how did that turn out? Well, the officers came back without him, and they were asked by the chief priest, why have you not brought him? And the officers said, no man ever spoke like this man. <laughs> they were so taken in by what Jesus had to say, they didn't bring him back. They, whether they saw no point, uh, whether it just wasn't possible, we know that it wasn't Jesus' time, so it wasn't going to happen anyway. But the officers said, no, no man has ever spoke like these men. So these officers, they weren't in control then, were they, during that scene? So they certainly are not in control on this night. It's apparent by the fact that they brought this cohort of Roman guard with them. They had to be thinking, we saw what happened in the temple when he turned over the tables, and if there's trouble, we want to be in control this time. We want backup. So they summoned this Roman cohort to go with them. Now what about the chief priests and the Pharisees? These guys always thought they were in control, didn't they? We've seen more interaction between Jesus and these chief priests and these Pharisees uh, probably than any other interaction uh, except the disciples throughout the whole book of John. These chief priests and Pharisees, the way that they manipulated the people for their own personal gain. We see that, uh, again, in Jesus turning over the money changers' tables, right? It was their way to make money. Everyone came for, to sacrifice each year. They come to the Temple Mount. They've got their lamb with them. There's an inspection that takes place. Ah, that lamb's just not going to cut it. It's flawed. So that's not going to work for the sacrifice. But we do have already temple-approved lambs over here that we can sell you, that you can use. And my guess is they would take their lamb 
Uh, the people will probably said, well, are you be interested in buying this lamb or can I trade it in on a temple approved lamb? Well, sure, yeah, we can work something out. They take this lamb, they put it in the back in a pen and then it's recycled as a temple approved lamb, right? They had a scam going. They were doing whatever they could to make money. And then there were the money changers themselves and that uh, currency had to be exchanged for the temple currency and it went at a high interest rate. They were ripping off the people but it was very profitable for them, wasn't it? They didn't want anyone disrupting that. Sir, we know that from Scripture they became to hate Jesus because He claimed to be God, but they hated Him just as much because He was hitting them in the pocketbook, wasn't He? So they manipulated the people for their own personal gain, and they manipulated the Roman leader, leaders to justify their own agenda. They were always plotting and positioning and scheming we're going to see as we move on in chapter 18 next week that there's this high priest named Caiaphas. And he was the son-in-law of Annas. Now Annas was actually the unofficial high priest. He was the power behind the scenes. Annas himself had been the chief priest for quite a long time. And through some events that took place, Rome when they came in decided... Now, we don't want you in there anymore. We're going to determine who becomes the high priest because this is someone that we need to be able to work with. So they instituted a bidding system, if you will. Up until that point, the high priest was the high priest for life, basically. But at this time, they instituted this bidding process. Whoever wanted to be high priest paid the Roman governor, the governors at that time, to be the high priest. So whoever had the highest bid got in. You know, it's the opposite of what we see today, like in construction and stuff, right? The lowest bid normally gets the job. There it was the highest bid. <laughs> Whoever gives me the most money, that gets to be the high priest. Well, you think about Annas being the high priest over all those years, doing his deeds on the Temple Mount when it came to the Temple Treasury and all those things, he had amassed quite amount of money. Annas would have been a very wealthy individual at this point, so, behind the scenes, he promotes Caiaphas, his son-in-law, into the high priest position so he could still be in control, right? That was Annas' whole game right there. Well, he thought he was in control. So the Romans, they didn't like dealing with Annas, but they could deal with Caiaphas. The Romans thought they were in control. These religious leaders thought they were in control. And Jesus, he came up on the scene and disrupted this whole system, this whole status quo. He'd, he'd become a thorn in their side. They didn't want to lose control. So you have this detachment of troops that's been sent. They want to make sure things don't get out of their control, right? You have these officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They don't want things to get out of control because they've got to face the chief priests and the Pharisees if it does, then you have the chief priests and the Pharisees themselves, the religious leaders, they think they're in control. They've set up this whole plot, this whole scheme involving Judas to make sure that this comes down the way that they want to. Who's in control? Verse 4, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that would come upon Him. Key phrase, isn't it? First of all, we know Jesus is God. He knows all things anyway. 
but He knows all things that would come upon Him. He knows all these things that as we saw last week, said what? Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but Your will be done. He was going to be obedient to the calling that He had upon His life to come and be a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So Jesus, therefore, knowing that all all things that would come upon Him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They didn't actually have to look for Jesus because He came to them boldly. It's not like Jesus was hiding behind a tree somewhere or something, you know. I wonder what's going to happen. He knew entirely what was going to take place. And He stepped forward boldly, basically to introduce Himself to them. And He said, Who are you seeking? They answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am He. And Judas, who betrayed Him, also stood with Him. Somewhere in verse 4 and 5, somewhere in this scene, Judas kisses Jesus as a sign for those who are with Him to know that this is Jesus. They knew, so they would know who to arrest. We see that in the other Gospel accounts. Verse 6, Now when He said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, In those two verses, if your translation says, which most do, I am He, notice that the word He is italicized. Do you see that in most translations? That means it was added there, or is placed there for clarity by the uh, translators. In the original language, it's not there. It's not necessary. In the original language, it has it right. Jesus said to them, I am Now, we've seen this many times, haven't we, in John? The I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life, the good shepherd, the door, the way, the truth, the life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the true vine. It's a simple proclamation of all of those combined. I am. The ego ami. It's a declaration of His deity. It's a declaration that He is God. And there's power in those two words, isn't there? God Himself speaking and the result. Jesus momentarily here displays His majesty and what happens? They all fell backward. (laughs) The same voice that said, Peace be still to the Sea of Galilee in Mark 4. The same voice that said, Rise, take up your bed and walk. In John 5, the same voice that said, Lazarus, come forth. In John 11, according to one commentator, he says, they came to arrest Jesus, but they didn't arrest Jesus. He arrested them. But imagine the scene. John Corson, a Calvary pastor, gives us some clarity on this. He says, with torches flying, armor clanking, and swords falling, all of these guys go down under the sheer power of Jesus' proclamation. What power! Can you imagine in a group standing and have that kind of power? I am! And they just fall down. Gang, that's why we don't have that kind of power. (laughs) Because we would use it in the wrong way, wouldn't we? Psalm 27.2 It's an interesting verse because it says, When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. 
We've seen just in our day the awesome power and destruction of wind through tornadoes and the like. We've seen just recently in the past few years the awesome power and destruction of water on the Big Thompson as it flooded. But think about the power of the One, the I Am, who has the power over wind and water. He created it. He controls it. What a sight to see. They fall down just by those two words. The deity, the power of Jesus Christ in that moment. So he waits for him to get up. Then he asks again. Now, <laughs> you know, you take some privileges when you look at, at Scripture and you think about how, how I would have said it. You know, the demeanor that I would have had in this next verse. You know, I would be like, and whom were you seeking? <laughs> I don't think we see that in the life of Jesus, do we? No, not at all. But he asked them again in verse 7, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I've told you that I am He. Therefore, if you seek Me, let these go their way. Now, it's just me, but I have to think that as He started to say again, I told you that I... They were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> don't say it. Don't say it. We get it. We get it. You don't have to knock us down again. We got it. You're Jesus. And Jesus says, if you seek me, let these go their way. Remember what Jesus told the Father in his prayer in John 17, 12? While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. If you seek me, let these go their way. Jesus protecting his disciples, isn't he? Let, if, if it's me you're after, let these guys go. He's protecting them. Verse 9, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. That verse that we just looked at. Now Martin Luther refers to this as the greatest miracle that happened that night in the garden. And we're going to see an ear healed here in a little while. But Luther, and he, when you look at this scene, you kind of have to agree that these guys have been traveling with him all along. It's his band of brothers, if you will. And what happens this night? In the same power that said what? I am. That same power is used. Let these go their way. And it happened. We know that they're scattered, of course. But So we've seen in this cast of characters, we've seen this detachment of troops. We've seen the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. We've seen the chief priests and the Pharisees themselves. And then finally, in verses 10 and 11, we have this guy named Peter. Peter with the proverbial shaped mouth, right? He was always sticking his foot in his mouth. Well, this time, he's got something hid under his garment. <laughs> it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? What's interesting about these two verses is the other Gospels 
give this account, but there's two things they leave out. Who is the one that cut off the ear? And who is the one that the ear got cut off of? <laughs> Lost his ear. They don't mention them by name. So the other three gospel accounts, I'm not saying that they were trying to protect the name of Peter. Well, we don't know why they did that, but it was God's will that his name not be in those. But it is here. Peter's name is mentioned here. And also Malchus, the servant of the high priest. So now Peter tries to take control of the situation, doesn't he? We see that the detachment of troops, they're not under control. The officers of the chief priests, they don't have it under control. The chief priests and the Pharisees themselves, no, they don't have it under control. So now Peter's going to take it on. With one little sword, a Roman cohort standing by, Peter's going to take them all on, right? <laughs> it just sounds like made-for-TV movie, you know, where Peter going out with his little sword. There's some translations that indicate maybe it was just a knife. He was a fisherman. Fishermen didn't typically use a sword to clean fish. So he goes after. Pulls out a sword. Does great damage to an ear. Think about that for a second. There's all these bodies standing around. And Peter swings with his mighty sword. Oh no. Wait for it. Wait for it. He cuts off an ear. <laughs> it's either really bad aim or it's God's divine direction, isn't it? <laughs> this whole scene would have been different if Peter had lopped off somebody's head, wouldn't it? Or would it? <laughs> if Jesus can put an ear back on and totally heal it, could he set a head back on, fully healed? He's God. Yeah, he could have done that. Nevertheless, this is how it came down. We know from Luke's Gospel account that Jesus healed the servant's ear. You ever wonder what happened to Malchus? You know, here's a guy, thought he was in control, probably right up front, maybe the representative from the chief priests and the Pharisees, feeling totally in control, and then in one fatal swoop, his ears laying on the ground. And just as quickly, Jesus reaches down, grabs his ear, puts it back on. Healed completely. And then the events that would take place over the next few days, how would they affect the life of Malchus? Well, we don't know anything about Malchus. There are some Scholars that think that he reappears with some historical writings uh, under a different name that may indicate that he wound up getting saved. It kind of makes sense. He who has ear, let him hear. <laughs> Maybe not. It sounded so much better in my mind. I just thought... <laughs> This is going to be great. <laughs> so we don't know what happened to Malchus. Uh, we would think that 
the influence that he had in his life just in this one scene would have affected him uh, greatly. We know that Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 refers to the Word of God as what? The sword of the Spirit. That's our sword, gang. Any battles we have to fight must be done wearing the full armor of God and wielding the sword of the Spirit. It's the only offensive weapon in all of the armor, isn't it? Everything else is defensive. Peter used his sword. He used it inappropriately and ineffectively. Out of control, if you will. And had Jesus not healed the servant's ear, there might have been four crosses on the hill that next day. Might have been. Didn't come down that way because Peter wasn't in control. Those troops weren't in control. The officers weren't in control. And also, Peter certainly wasn't in control. That night in the garden, who was really in control? We know. We know it It was Jesus himself. He was not only in control, but he was in complete control of everything that was taking place. Nothing was going to stop the path that was set before him. He had submitted himself to the will of the Father. They were one. They were in control. So the question before us this day, and yours and mine, in our walk with the Lord, who's in control? We know that we desire for the Lord to be guiding. We know that we desire for the Lord to be providing, that we're not going to try to step out in the flesh and be in control ourselves. We want God to be in control. When I was preparing for this teaching, a song kept, com- kept coming in my head. Remember some years ago, Twyla pra- Paris? How many of you remember Twyla Paris? <laughs> Great, more than I thought would. She had a song, God is in Control. It was a chorus, an anthem of that very fact. A great song. God is in control. He was in complete control in the garden. Yes, we look at what takes place over the next few chapters, over the next day in the life of Jesus, and it gives us great sorrow because we know what He suffered for us. But we have to balance that with the fact that it was God's plan and Jesus was going to carry out God's plan. So therefore, the Father and the Son are in complete control of this situation. Again, the question for us is, are they in control of our lives each and every day? If they can take care of this and everything else that we see in the Word, they're more than capable of taking care of whatever little thing we've got going on in our lives, really. Uh, Sometimes things can be overwhelming, can't they? But in light of a lot of what we see in Scripture, they are a lot of times just small things, aren't they? And as we give over those small things to the Lord and allow Him to be in control, then it's nothing at all for us to give over big things, is it? We know that He's got it. He can take care of us. He is in control. Amen.